Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. <clears throat> Please excuse my voice. I'd be grateful if, as I'm speaking this morning, uh, you would from time to time just lift up a prayer for me. I, I am uh, battling what a lot of you have been battling all week, and uh, I'm really praying that my voice lasts through the duration of this. Maybe some of you are hoping we'll cut it short, but I'm praying that God will get us to the end of it. Um, this morning, we are starting a new series, and it's not going to last very long. It's going to be a three-sermon mini-series, and it's going to be on the topic of stewardship. Usually, when we hear the word stewardship, we think of a church working a way to get more money out of us. That is not our aim at all, and I want to be very clear on that with you. Uh, we have never been about that and don't want to be about that. And so today, this morning, I want to kick off that series by developing a right and biblical understanding of what stewardship means and set the table for the rest of the series. Um, first one is called Stewarding Our Talents. I, I just picked a unicycle because it's, that's something like most people don't know how to do, and it just makes me think about a talent. Uh, and I'll explain to you how I'm going to use the term talent a little more broadly than that in just a moment. But I want to, I want to take our text from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And here's what it says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. And if it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. It's the word of God. Let's just pray briefly. God, we pray for your power, both in the preaching and the hearing and receiving of this word. God, it will be easy for us this morning to understand these words intellectually and yet that they might be rendered powerless through our lack of faith. And so we pray that you would open up our hearts to receive these words as from you and that, that we would experience the kind of life transformation that you want to give us as a great gift. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the Bible paints a picture of Christian life that isn't always so idyllic and beautiful and peaceful. I know that we think of the epitome of Christian life as um, uh, an innocent-looking sheep resting on a, a field of green next to a still um, pool of cold water. But in fact, the Bible also presents for us a picture of the Christian life as a constant struggle, a battle in intention between two opposing forces that are waging war and seek dominion over our hearts. You know, Paul describes this battle, this tension, as a war of ideas. He says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And what Paul's describing there is that life is like a war of ideas. 
And these ideas have tremendous consequence. In fact, everything your life is like right now flows out of ideas that have captivated your heart. You don't just live out of habits and out of planning and strategy, but these ideas embedded in your heart have tremendous consequence over the choices you make and the ambitions you follow with your life. Just pause and think about that for a moment. How much your life is defined by a war of ideas. Paul also goes on to describe this the spiritual battle as a warring of desires or cravings deep within us. He says this, For I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Does that describe at any point the way you sometimes feel about your own spiritual life? That it's as if you are two people at once, that inside of you, on the one hand is this nobility, this beauty, this heart that wants God, and on the other hand is this other vile creature that lives in you. This thing that wants things you know are clearly wrong, self-destructive, will carry a terrible consequence if you are caught. And yet, those, both those beings, those cravings, those desires, are always waging war inside of us. That is what it is to be alive and human in a fallen world. That is part of the description of the Christian experience, is that you will always be at war within yourself. And these two desires or cravings will exert themselves without ceasing in your life. Paul takes this idea he wrote to the Galatians and he makes it profoundly personal in his letter to the Romans. He says, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do this I keep on doing. So Paul's not just sermonizing. He's saying, this is my story too. There is no Christian, no spiritual pilgrim who will ever outgrow this battle, which will mark our lives forever. Jesus himself goes on to say that this battle can also be described as a battle or a war of worship or of God's. Ultimately, it's a battle for who you will worship, who will get supremacy in your life. And he says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, he says the word wealth or money, but he's not just talking about greenbacks, dollars. What he's saying is, You cannot serve two different masters, whether it's money or anything else that symbolizes the pursuits of the world. You cannot build a life in which you simultaneously serve two kings and build two kingdoms. And so that's that's the background against which we talk about this concept of stewardship. Jesus' words especially make it clear that the central question of spiritual life is this. Who is your God? Who will win the fight for supremacy over your soul? Who will you live for, follow, obey, and worship? This is a central question of spiritual life. Presuming that you have trusted Jesus to salvation and you feel you can sleep at night because your eternity is established, the next pressing question is, who really is your God? And who determines the way that you make your life's decisions. I think one of the places that this battle is most made visible is in our relationship to the different assets that we're entrusted with. And so I want to talk briefly about stewardship and spiritual battle. I think this battle that is always going on within us is made very visible in this realm of stewardship, in the way that we relate to and handle assets which are given to us. And I think we can talk broadly about three different kinds of assets that are entrusted to us or that belong to us. And you've probably heard this before. We talk about time, talent, 
and treasures, right? Time, talent, and treasures. Time, obviously, would be the number of years we have, and our treasure is obviously the material assets we have. But we're also going to talk today about these talents that we're given. And those are the three broad categories of assets that we have a responsibility before God to handle in a certain way. In fact, how we relate to those assets is perhaps the most reliable indicator of what's going on in our spiritual lives. I know that sometimes we can really feel the music, get into it, and you, you know, some of, some of us will look around and say, that person looks like they're really digging Jesus right now. And in that moment, they probably are. And maybe you're feeling like, um, why don't I ever feel like that? Well, that is one indicator of spiritual intimacy. But what the Bible seems to indicate is one of the most reliable visual measures of the spiritual life is how we relate to material things. It's an interesting thing because what spiritual life seeks to do is uproot us from this world and say that there is a realm, a kingdom in existence beyond this world. There is another kingdom. And as we're being uprooted from that kingdom, how we cling onto or how we release those things reveals what's happening in us spiritually. I think we could properly speak of these things as belonging to us. We understand it that way. I have a certain number of years on this earth. I have a certain bank account and a net worth. I have certain material assets. And I have certain talents that are entrusted to me. But even though we speak of owning these things, they are ours, the Bible teaches us, look look at what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What Paul's saying is, do you realize, just like what Job said when everything was stripped away from him, look, naked I came into the world, that's how I'm going to depart. All of us came into the world buck naked. How, how surprised would you be if you were in the delivery room and a baby came out wearing a onesie? You're like, what? The, what? what? That doesn't happen. You come into the world buck naked. Nothing but an, even the oxygen and the nutrition you get are borrowed from your mother. You come with nothing. They cut that cord and you're like, look at me, I'm nothing. And then when you leave the world, they may bury you with a lot of stuff, but essentially you're going to go back the same way you came in. And everything you have in between is about stewardship. What Paul is saying is there's nothing you actually own Because you can't bring it in with you, and you certainly can't take it out with you. Everything that passes through your hands in this earthly life is a gift given for your management and stewardship. Brown 2946. I think that's the basic idea behind stewardship. Is that it begins with acknowledging that in fact I don't actually own anything. I don't. Everything that I hold in my hands was somehow given to me. Even the illusion that I worked hard for my money, that's because you were able to work hard for your money. Everything you've been given, a family that valued education, the ability to attend a university, a brain that wasn't crippled by some kind of disability, hands and feet, legs and arms that work, All of those things are given to us. We did a lot with what we were given, but in the end, there is nothing you have which you did not receive. Let's talk about then, if we understand that stewardship begins with the acknowledgement that we own nothing, but we manage and steward everything. Here's what Paul goes on to say in Romans 12. We're going to talk about stewardship as worship. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And then he says something profound, almost jarring. He says, this is your true and proper worship. When you hear the word worship, what springs to mind? If I said to you, hey, let's go worship, what will you think of right away? You can shout it out out loud. What do you think of? Singing, okay, great. What else? Praying, okay. What else? Church, we're doing it right now, right? 
we say, let's go worship, you, your next question is, which church, right? Where are we going? So when we think of the word worship, that is what we think of. We think of church services. We think of singing. We think of prayer and times quietly spent communing with God. Those are all definitely expressions of worship. But Paul then adds an amazing other dimension to it. He says, do you really want to know what worship looks like in the human experience? It is not simply bound up in religious exercises that look like you are this side of heaven, eyes closed, hands raised, close to God. It's not only in those moments we worship, but true and proper worship is seen in the offering up of the entirety of our lives on an altar to God. If you can ignore that, you're not awake right now. That is a disturbing teaching. Because what he's saying is you cannot buy God off with heartfelt singing. You can't distract him by going, oh, oh, don't look at my life. Look at how I, oh, Lord, I love you. Just look at how I worship you. He says, I am looking at how you worship me. You sing real good. You pray real eloquently. But I'm also seeing another area of your life where I don't think worship is happening. You're very religious, but you're not as worshipful as you might believe unless the way that you relate to assets in your life, people, things, time entrusted to you are offered up in their totality to God as sacrifice. That is the measure of true worship is a posture bent in humility, offering up everything to God. I think worship is seen in this. It's the extent to which God is the defining and organizing principle of our lives. How central is he? How much does he drive how we think? What makes us happy or unhappy? How we choose to plan the allocation of our different resources? How we spend our time? And here's what Paul goes on to say. He says, here's the reason that many of us have difficulty living life as worship in this way. What I just described, what Paul describes is not an easy thing. To offer your entire life on the altar of sacrifice to God is not a small thing. It is the journey and the challenge of an entire lifetime to live that way. He says, here's the biggest speed bump on the road to living that way. He says, the problem is most of us in our default setting conform to the pattern of this world. Now, you'd be interested to know that the word conform there is a passive verb. It's not like we're trying actively to look like the world, to imitate the world. We're not, you know, like, like some guys, um, they're doing Barack Obama impressions, so they watch Barack Obama videos all day, and then they practice doing it. It's not like that. We're not studying the world going, how can I become just like them? It isn't so active a thing. Rather, what he says is, the problem is we are being conformed. Pressed like jello into a mold, we are being shaped by a prevailing pattern of this world. I know most of us like to think we're pretty free thinkers, right? Would you agree with that? Most of you don't like to think that somebody could bury ideas in your head, that you're free from influence. Hey, go ahead and preach all you want. I'll figure out whether I agree with that or not later. I'm not that susceptible to advertising and gimmicks and slogans. I think for myself, baloney. There isn't one of us in this room that thinks entirely for ourselves. We are all being shaped by thousands of things. The only thing we seem to have control over is what we let shape us. Which influences we submit our hearts to. If you think you make all your own thoughts originally, you are so deluded. You should be put in an asylum. There's nobody who generates all of their own thinking. We are the products of the world we live in, and we are the products of the other influences that we allow to shape us. I'm amazed at how much people's attitudes, for example, reflect and mirror the entertainment they watch. I know when somebody's hooked on Korean dramas, for example, that I'm going to counsel them along certain ways. Because that constant onslaught of a worldview is shaping how they feel about their own lives. I'm not happy because my life doesn't look like that. It's amazing the relationship between the influences we submit ourselves to and what's going on inside of us. And we think, no, I'm just genuinely unhappy all by myself. No, you're not. You didn't sit there one day and think all by yourself how unhappy you are. You are shaped, molded, conformed to a prevailing 
pattern of this world. It's what some people have called the zeitgeist. Are you familiar with that German term? Zeitgeist literally means the spirit of the age. It's the prevailing wind of values and worldview that marks our generation and our world at this moment. Some of the things, the truths that we hold in this culture, and they affect us more than you might imagine. It, it defines our values, our, our motivations, our ambitions. It defines how we measure our own worth and the worth of others. What are some of the things, for example, that mark the spirit of this age, the pattern of the world we live in? What are some of the statements or truths that we see a lot of people following in their life? I, I, just, I thought of a few off the top of my head. I'll give you some. There's no way I could speak to the whole of it, but here are a few things that I thought of. I'm not truly alive unless I'm happy and fulfilled. That's a big piece of the spirit of our age, is I'm not really alive unless I'm happy and fulfilled. Here's another one. Freedom is never having to depend on anyone for anything. So we think of financial independence not so much as buying a $110 million yacht, but not needing to need anyone. If I get sick, if I get hurt, if something breaks, I'll replace it. I don't need to go begging after you, hat in hand. Hey, buddy, listen, could you spare a dime? I don't ever want that humiliation, that inconvenience. I'd rather determine my own fate. I'd rather secure my own fence. There's another one. You've arrived when everyone knows your name. You know, that may not mark all of us, but I'm watching this next generation of kids grow up. And this idol worship that used to be a part of when we were growing up with those stars and the hair bands of the 80s and all that and people screaming and fainting at the concerts. And that whole thing is coming right back, man. It's amazing how many young kids today, their life's dream is to be the next Justin Bieber, to become famous and then as a result, fabulously wealthy. The money's not even the main motivator. It's that everybody knows my name. That is an intoxicating life ambition for an entire generation of young people. Here's another one. Do what feels right to you. Don't let anybody oppress you with their rules and their ideas. In other words, we make our own truth. We make our own morals. Don't let some old-fashioned, outdated system tell you when you should feel bad about what you're doing. Now, do you understand that there is an element of truth in each of those statements? The problem is not that they're outright lies, but that they don't tell the whole truth. And it's these things, these ideas, that even in the church, and I know this for a fact because I've talked to many of you and seen that you are in the grips of some of the thinking that is the pattern of this age. I'm not immune to it either. I'm seeing it all. The weeds are growing in my own garden. And we are being conformed to these things. They are influencing us more than our pride would ever allow us to admit. Think about when you feel good about your life and when you don't feel so good about your life. And the pressing question to explore in those moments is, why don't I feel good? Or why do I feel good? And so what Paul says is, the only way to break free from this conformity to the spirit of our age is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Do you see that that word transform is also a passive verb? It's not something we do. It is something being done for us and to us. In other words, true spiritual transformation is not the product of human exertion alone. It is primarily the work of God. It is something he is doing in us and to us and for us. So then what is our part in all of this? How do I break free from this conformity to the spirit of our age? How do I begin thinking differently about what's valuable and what I live for? I, I can follow different rules, but how do I actually become different in the way I feel? Like a teenager under oppressive parents, I can do whatever will get me out of trouble, but when will I actually decide that this is who I am? This is how I want to live when I have my freedom. How does a person change? Because we know that this is primarily the work of God, I think the one thing we can do about it, the one part we do play, is choosing which things we submit to to influence us. It is to cast away, to separate ourselves from those things, those environments, those relationships that seduce us away from a Christ-centered life. 
and to lay hold of those things which influence and shape us in a Christ-word direction. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying let's buy bonnets and become Amish and, you know, swear off electricity and all that. I'm not saying run from the world because it's icky and bad. Here's what I'm saying. Let's not be foolish and naive about it. Some of you are being greatly influenced by a particular relationship in your life. And everyone around you knows that it's so embarrassingly obvious and you are the only one in denial. You're like, whatever. He's just my friend. He doesn't influence me. Of course, you are so gripped by envy, by comparison, by feelings of inadequacy, insecurity. These things are affecting us more than we care to say. And the more we are around these people and their influence, their worldview begins to touch us, we are caught in that web and it's hard to break free. This is not something I say to accuse any of you. I, I, I have to be careful which pastors I hang around. Let me think about that statement for a minute. Because some pastors make me feel like, geez, I'm 45. My church is like a tenth the size of his. He looks so happy, so professional, so on the move. What am I doing with my life? I got to be careful, not that they're trying to make me evil or pull me down, but the more I'm around them without my guard up, the more I'm seduced by thinking that has nothing to do with Christ. It's being alert, taking some responsibility and acknowledging that I am not so free from external influence. I have to be very wise which people, which things I allow to mold me into their image and influence me. Because every day, the decisions, the battle for your heart is raging in that arena. And many days, we are simply not submitting ourselves to God. Here's really what I'm trying to say about the theology of stewardship. It is not simply the reallocating and remanagement of our assets. You won't become a steward because you rebudget. You won't become a steward because you recalendar. You won't become a steward because you join a ministry team at this church. Stewardship is not primarily about how you manage things, but it begins with how you honor a relationship. Stewardship arises from a heart of devotion to Jesus Christ. Stewardship is basically this. I value you so much, God, that I will take my back, my dreams and put them in the back seat and I will put your dreams in the front seat. That is what stewardship arises from. It is not primarily about how we spend our money, but it is all arising out of whether God is God or we are God, whether we are devoted to Christ or devoted to ourselves. And that's why I wanted to spend a substantial amount of time setting the table for this series by developing a theological framework for stewardship because the rest of the series will simply flow out of that. I'm only going to talk very briefly about talents in particular. But I hope you get the concept that if you really want to understand stewardship, it begins with a complete renewal of what you value and who you love and who is central and supreme in your life. Without that important thing happening, all you're doing is changing the way you budget, and that's just not enough. It's not what God is after. He doesn't want your money and your time. He wants you, and stewardship is the place in which that tug of war gets executed. So let's talk a little bit about the stewardship of our talents. If time is the number of days that you have before you check out, and we'll talk more about that next week, I'll have some graphic illustrations to talk about numbering our days. And we'll talk about the stewardship of time. Do not miss next Sunday. Okay, I really mean, you're, you're going you're gonna to be impacted by it, I'm sure. I, I've been planning this illustration for like six months, and so I just really want you to see what we have to see next week. Time is something precious to us. It's how many days we have before we decide and finally see was it real or not. Faith is going to finally be justified at death, right? Was this a stupid thing or was this the best thing we ever did following Jesus? And then there's our treasure. You may think that's what we're really after. It's not. Treasure, though, we could define simply as this. It's our material assets. It's our home. It's our money. 
It's our children. It's all those material assets we feel make us rich, make us feel like we have something. So what is talents then? I'm not going to use it specifically in one narrow sense, but I'm going to lump all of it together to refer to this. I think our talents that we steward are all of our non-material assets, our non-material assets. Everything that we can rightly call ours, which is not translatable directly to dollars and cents. Look at what Paul says about it. He says, we have different gifts. And he's talking about spiritual gifts, but I think it's warranted to extend the teaching beyond just spiritual gifts to cover other things. He says, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. There's a cadence or a rhythm to what Paul is saying here. He's saying, look, every one of you has been entrusted with some things that we can call non-material assets, talents. Maybe it's a life experience, stuff you've been through that nobody else has been through, so that God is able to use you in ways that he cannot use other people. I see that all around us in our church. There are some of you who have seen things and been through things that I can't even start to imagine. And when it comes time to be used by God, you will be far more useful in certain settings than I ever will be. Maybe it's something like natural abilities, right? Some of you have an amazing sense of direction. Some of you have coordination where you can juggle stuff. Some of you are great with numbers. Some of you are great with words. Some of you are great with kids. And some of you are bad at all of those things. But, you know, we, we have natural abilities, things that you just go, I don't, I don't get how anyone can do that. Like juggling. You don't know how many times in secret I have tried to become a juggler. I can't. There's something missing in my brain, and I can't juggle. But I really, really wish I could. Very frustrating. How about special skills? Things that you discover were maybe talents, but then you acquired them and you sharpened them and you grew them over years of steady investment. Special skills maybe like riding a unicycle. Nobody jumps out of the womb and goes, look at this, I could do this. You, you have to practice and fall a lot. Skateboarding, violin, poetry, painting. What about things like peculiar interests? Why do you care about that? It seems so stupid. No, I'm obsessed with it. Well, that's weird. That will t- See, and do you realize that's an asset? Because your peculiar interest will take you places nobody else cares to go, but others who are drawn by the same thing will meet you there, and you have the ability to reach their lives where I don't. There are a lot of people in this room who will be more effective bringing Christ to the Comic-Con crowd than I would be. Right? <laughs> you get that, right? So you're peculiar. And when I say peculiar, I don't mean strange, unusual. I mean specific to you is an asset that is meant to be stewarded. Here's another one. Capacities. Some of us have tremendous capacities for things. Some of us have incredible pain tolerance. Some people have an incredible capacity for repetitive work. Some people have a great capacity for altitude. I can't go back to Bolivia without really being sent by the Lord because I suffer 24-7 in that country. It's hard. The altitude kills me. Maybe it's a spiritual gift. Some special anointing given to you by God so when you minister in this area, you are extraordinarily fruitful. Things happen. People get saved. People see Jesus whenever you do this thing. Whatever it is, this non-material asset you've been entrusted with, here's what Paul is saying. Here's what God is saying. God put it in you to draw something out of you. He deposited it in you. He allowed you to go through those experiences, to be born with those natural abilities, to acquire those skills, to have those capacities and peculiar interests, and to be anointed with spiritual gifts so that he could get something back out of your life. There was a plan he had, a vision of fruitfulness, of life as worship, of personal ministry and devotion lived out so that it would be translated into something glorious for him. 
Do you see why that's so opposed to the pattern of this world? Because according to the pattern of this world, what are all of our non-material assets good for? Think about it. In the pattern of this world, every non-material asset has value when it can be translated into a material asset. Oh, you're good at drawing. No one says, why don't you glorify God? They go, why don't you try to sell something? Draw for a living. Oh, you're good at singing. You should record something. Sell CDs. Because in this world, every non-material asset, every talent is only worth something when you can get paid for it. Right? That's the pattern of this world. And so we're busy, busy, busy thinking, uh, what skill should I give my kid? Um, you know, that equestrian stuff? Well, there's no money in pro equestrian horse riding. So I want my kid to pursue baseball. Or, you know, we're always thinking, how can I give my kid a leg up? Preparing them to what? Get paid. Dollar, dollar bill. You know, no one goes, I just want my child to become a poetry major. No, you don't. You don't. You want them to do poetry as a hobby, not as a living, because there's no money in it, right? And so we live in a time where we really don't understand the full value of these talents God has entrusted to us. We're always trying to figure out a way to make money with what we can do. But what God is saying is, I also gave you those things so you can make glory, make worship, make a life out of these things I gave you. Some of you might think that the particular giftings and talents that you've been entrusted with have no place in the kingdom of God. There's no religious bearing to what you can do. You would be wrong. You'd be amazed at how many ways God could use all the things he's put in you to draw glory for himself out of your life. You've already proven you can make money with it, but have you ever really pursued how God could get glory from it? When you begin thinking that way, those talents start to bloom, and God does something amazing with them. I want to invite a brother from our church up here to share a brief story about how God deposited something in him and then cashed that check and pulled out a withdrawal. John, would you come up? Um, <clears throat> thanks. Um, I want to start by saying um, that in my faith journey, my biggest mistake has been the word no. Um, I've said no way too many times. Uh, I'm, no, I'm not ready. No, I'm not gifted that way. Uh, no, I can't. And I wish that in hindsight... I would go back and say yes so many more more times. Um, Dave asked me to talk a little bit about the process of me writing this book um, that will be out in the back. Um, I didn't start out to write this book because I felt like I was gifted as a writer. It's just the opposite. I felt I knew my inadequacies. Um, But Something was brewing in me, a frame of seeing the work of grace within us. And I believe it was something I was told to take hold of. God is in the business of using foolish things to profound the wise, and I'm just one of those things. If someone had told me way back that I would write a book one day, um, and that people would be impacted. It would be like telling me that I would be a great um, hip-hop rapping dancer. You know? It just seemed way too far-fetched for me. But something came upon me, uh, a paradigm um, I thought worth putting out there for others to understand. More regarding the work of grace in their lives. So I started to write. And it was an inch-by-inch process in which I felt stuck and frustrated countless of times. If I were 20 years younger, in my more immature state, I would have quit early, early on. But God encouraged me along the way and gave me this uh, stick-to-it spirit. There were plenty of mistakes, and it didn't look pretty, Uh, the first time it came out as a draft. 
At one point, I had a writer's block for a whole year. I sat down, set apart everything, and you said I would sit down every day to write, and nothing came out, or next to nothing. Um, still, I felt God's assurance that this was what I was called to do, and I continued. It was very good that it took a long time to produce, uh, six years, actually, for I was being written upon in the process of writing. It was a work in me to trust and not to be driven by approval and recognition, but simply a long, ongoing obedience. The book is called Resisting Grace. And the message of Resisting Grace um, is uh, let me share a little bit about. Um, the book, but I want to really say that the book worked on me much more than I worked on writing it. Resisting Grace is about God's working to bring about transformation in our lives and how we resist it. It is realizing our brokenness and our resistance to change. It is understanding what His grace is so to learn to cooperate with it and experience greater work of grace within us. It is about what God is trying to do in this day in my life. It is about hearing him, being stirred by him, moved by him, stripped by him, filled by him, transformed by him. It is knowing he wants to change us. It is knowing that change only comes by him. It is knowing that it is not in formulas of self-help techniques, but in the dynamic power of grace that only comes from intimacy with a God who works within. It is knowing why we resist him and how we can start moving with instead of against that amazing work of grace. I am totally convinced that God is at work every day of our lives, that he's either trying to say something to you, he's trying to stir something within you, he's trying to steady your resolve, he's trying to shatter your props, he's trying to strengthen you beyond yourself, and he's trying to surpass all those things that bind you and give you freedom. Resisting Grace, the book, seeks to help you unpack that reality in your life. I thought it would be good if we can just say a prayer together as a church to dedicate this book for God's use and ask him to use it in mighty ways. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the way that you plant vision into us like a foreign idea, a thought that we cannot shed, and that you pursue us with these visions until we obey you. And when we obey you, beautiful things come out. We thank you for John's obedience to your leading and for the ideas behind this book that you deposited into his heart. Lord, we believe that this book will be of great help to many. It is not a book written to make a fortune. It's a book written to make a difference. And so we pray that you will pick up this book and put it into the hands of those who are stuck, who are resisting, who are so close and yet so far from the life that you are drawing them into. We pray that you would use this book powerfully to do ministry in the hearts of many people. We pray that you would bless John, that he would not be done sharing your deposits with the world, but you make him exceedingly fruitful. We pray the blessing on this book, we dedicate it to you and to your kingdom purposes. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Blessings. Um, John's got a book table set up back there. If you want, after the service, he'll show you. That's actually him on the cover. He'll show you how he conjures up balls of white magic power. And uh, <clears throat> you can learn that from him as well as um, obtain a copy of the book and even get it signed by the author. When's the last time you got to do that at church? The other thing I would ask is if you buy a copy of the book, I'm begging you to read it because 
Owning the book doesn't confer any magic power to you. You've got to read it, and the, the book is worth reading. I think for some of you, um, you will be very surprised how God uses the book to unstick you from where you're stuck. All right. Uh, the other thing I should just mention is um, sometimes when we're obeying and vision is, is moving and we're bearing fruit, it's contagious. And so at the same time, John's writing his book. His daughter, Joelle, wrote a book. I believe it's called An Island and a Chance. Is that right? And so it's published. It's on Amazon. Uh, my family owns a couple copies, and it's back there as well. So there's two generations of authors from the same family that will be happy to share their books with you. And as you look at their book, don't just look at them. Think about you. Because that's how I want to land this thing. Here's, uh, here's what I want to finish by talking about. is stewardship as giving our very best to God. When you look at the, at the end of verse 8, he shifts gears a little. Before, it was just this if-then. If your thing is this, then do it. If your thing is this, then do it. But in the last three things, he adds a qualifier at the end. He says, if it is giving, hey, give generously. If it is to lead, lead diligently. If it is to show mercy, show it cheerfully. Right? What is he saying? He's saying, if you're going to do something to be obedient to the deposit God put in you, if you're going to bear fruit for him, give him your talents, do it in a way that really makes a difference. Give it your very best. Last week, it was my privilege to go and see the Bulls play the Heat at the United Center. That's a hot ticket. I was amazed that I got one. Somebody gave one to me. And I was so hyped, so excited. I bought a cheeseburger and a hot dog. I sat down in my seat, and I was, until the game started, and that's about as far as the excitement went. That was the most pathetic basketball game I have ever, ever seen. I think that five of us from Harvest could have beat the Bulls that night. It's probably a little bit of an exaggeration, but not that big. It was the most ridiculous performance. Okay? I, I shot that picture, by the way, from the far seats, and... Most of my pictures are of LeBron embarrassing us, pulling down the Bulls' pants and spanking them. It was basically every shot. Is, look, it looks like I'm a Miami Heat fan because every picture I took was LeBron looking awesome and us looking like dopes. And what was so disappointing is not that they lost. Lots of people lose to the Heat, okay? What was so disappointing was that you could tell every last one on the Bulls was phoning it in. And that was what was so disappointing is that so many fans paid so much money, had so much anticipation. We came here to watch these guys at their office doing their jobs, and they could not return the favor by trying. And that was so disappointing because I thought, you guys are millionaires getting paid to play a game you love. The least you could do when you come to work is show up, sweat a little, scream, jump, dive for the ball. None of this, you know, Carlos Boozer's defense. Oh. You know, it's just pathetic. And you just watch it and you go, this is what it looks like when people go through motions, but they're not giving the best that they can. And I think there's a lot of that that goes on in God's family. There's a lot of, all right, let me just do this. And we do it. And we don't do it with the qualifiers that God adds. He says, if you're going to do a thing, do it with everything you've got, because if it's worth doing for God, it's worth doing with all that you have. So the proper application to this message is not just simply um, find some small gesture that will help you feel better that you did something for God, but think deeply about all the non-material assets that God... You can turn that screen off. I don't want to look at that anymore. Just shut it, shut it off. Yuck. Please shut it off. Black it out. It's offensive to me. All right, thank you. Uh, Think deeply about everything God deposited in you and ask this one powerful question. How am I using this for the glory of God? Is there more than just a small gesture? Is there something in me which God wants me to give birth to? And ask John sometime what it was like writing a book. Writing a book is like giving birth over a period of six years. It's just, it comes out painfully, slowly. There's a lot of gunk. It just, it's not an easy thing. But when it's done, you realize, look what the Lord has done through a bum like me. Look what he can do. And you will marvel at the way that God could use what you can do. So that's a challenge to you today. 
I know that you have used your many talents for all kinds of things, to bless your family, to earn a good living, to advance a career and actually be good at what you do. I am now asking as well, think hard, be reflective. What has God deposited in you that he now wants to withdraw from you? Is it a spiritual gift? Is it an ability, an experience, skill, some capacity, maybe an interest? Something that marks you as you, that's an asset in your hands. And I want you to think about whether you are worshiping God with that asset. Because if you will bow your knees before him and offer him this, he may draw out of you far greater things than you imagined with this thing that he's entrusted to your care. Why don't we just bow our heads together? I think this would be a good time for me to stop talking. Why don't we just um, bow our heads and come before God? I was excited about preaching this message here because I think that what we have at Harvest is a profoundly talented and gifted congregation. You guys have been one of the most interesting groups of people to pastor. And I think almost on a weekly basis, I find out something about someone at this church, and I'm like, what? They can do that? They've been there? And, you know, there's just so much that God has poured into each of us. Just pause for a moment. Think about all the ways that God has poured into you. Stuff you've experienced. Abilities and skills you've acquired have been given. A realm of expertise, an area of interest, a capacity, all of this is from God. And ask the question, why would he do this for me? Why would he put all this into one life? What is it that I see emerging out of that picture? I think for some, at least, in this church, the answer will be something profound a defining work of your life, something you will look back on and say, I can't believe that the Lord did that through me. And that excites me to think about. So why don't we go to God and let him continue speaking and respond to him with our lives on the altar as a living sacrifice. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.